The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on Star Wars The Force Awakens. Am I mm-hmm. using the correct colons and Oh, I feel like people there? are calling this episode movie seven? all combinations of Star Wars Episode Seven and The Force yeah, Awakens. It's, it's usually it's, not all three. I think, I think the official title is Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens. Yes, Star Wars colon Episode Seven and dash, I think, <laughs> The Force Awakens. Something the like punctuation that. remains perhaps yes. in doubt, but we've got the essence of it. At any rate, it is the seventh Star Wars movie and also the seventh in the chronology now, mm-hmm. right? Our chronology has been caught back up again. And the first Star Wars movie not directed by George Lucas ever, am I correct? No, no. So no. Uh, George Lucas directed the original Star Wars, the 1977 movie, and the three prequels, but Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi were two different directors, though he was heavily involved and often on set and calling a lot of shots from right. what I Yeah, and an, enough of an involved reports. presence that, yeah, he, he right. would be called more than a distant producer of yeah, some kind. Yeah, right. That is but, in these, in, but in this new J.J. Abrams co-written and directed version, if I'm correct, George Lucas has no official hand. He has no involvement whatsoever. So this is the first one, you know, for Empire Strikes Back, Irvin Kershner directed that. I forget who directed Jedi. Richard Marquand, um, I think. That's right. Yeah. I am definitely uh, in the room forget? with the right two people. Wait, I'm just realizing <laughs> that that intro took so long, I haven't intro to you guys yet. So joining me to talk about Star Wars, thank God, or I would have no idea where to turn are Forrest Wickman, Slate Senior Editor. Hey, Forrest. Hey, Dana. And calling in from D.C., we have Jamel Bowie, Slate's chief political correspondent. Howdy. So uh, usually what I do at these the beginning of these spoilers is go around and just get a very quick thumbnail response, yes or no, from everyone. So as the conversation proceeds, listeners know, are they defending the movie? Are they attacking it or something in between? But with a movie that's this complex and brings this much history, I think that we should say that quickly, our response to this episode, and also a quick background sketch of your relationship to the Star Wars franchise. Okay, let's, let's start with you, Forrest. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if we should give our expectations since there has been an entire year of people forming their expectations about this movie, I think longer than a year, and then whether or not it met them. Because, yes, we are all thumbs up. I think we can say right up front and that we think people should see it if they're interested. My expectations going in were generally, oh, this is a J.J. Abrams movie. Probably he'll do the same thing that he did with Star Trek in 2009, which is make a movie that doesn't reinvent the wheel, doesn't enrage the hardcore fans too much, but kind of breaks enough rules, just enough rules to be interesting. And I feel like that's what he did with this. And it's um, the first Star Wars movie in a long time that I think everyone is pretty much going to like. And I really liked it. I, For me, because my background is that I grew up a huge Star Wars fan who was first in line for Phantom Menace in sixth grade, I should, I will hasten to add. Um, for me, going to see a pretty good Star Wars movie is different than seeing a pretty good movie in any other franchise, to the extent that I kept kind of getting choked up and then felt embarrassed about it. So, okay, so this does have, this has deep roots in your emotional life and your childhood memories. Yes, I was interviewed on the news in sixth grade in a Yoda mask about why <laughs> I was first in line uh, for The Phantom Menace. I want that gift, Forrest, and I want it on my desk I tried Monday to morning. dig it up, and I can't, I can't find it because I, well, I, tr- I was also in the Hartford Current, and there was a photo in the paper, and I couldn't find it, and it's not in the archive. So. Uh, before the days it of digital archiving. It is as lost archiving. as Luke Skywalker. 
Jamil, what about you? You have, I know, a very intense history with Star Wars fandom, including, and you've written about this for Slate, the expanded universe, not just the seven movies, now seven movies that we know, but that extended universe of novelizations and comic book versions and video games and other extensions of the universe. Right, right. So first, I my, expect, my expectations for this movie were actually cautious optimism. I, you know, like Forrest, I saw the prequels, Phantom Menace, I think I was also in the sixth grade. And then Attack of the Clones and and Revenge of the Sith um, as they came out in theaters. I mean, I I actually do not remember my reaction to The Phantom Menace when it came out. But I distinctly know that I very much disliked Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. And so coming into this, uh, you know, I like DJ Abrams. He's he's fine. But cautious optimism, I was hoping it just would not be bad. If it were merely okay, I would have been completely fine and even satisfied. I think the movie is good. um, And we'll talk more about that. As far as my history with Star Wars, uh, Dana, you were right on the money. I saw the films as a kid. Um, I saw the special editions when they came out in theaters, the prequels. And then I basically spent – in the same way that there are kids today who their fictional lives are essentially defined by something like uh, Harry Potter. My my sort of fictional life as a kid was mediated by Star Wars. And so I didn't just watch the movies. I played the video games uh, when I was in – I want to say fifth grade for Christmas, my parents got me a Nintendo 64, and one of the first games they got for it uh, for me was Shadows of the Empire, which is its own sort of whole series of of, of novelizations and comics and such. Uh, one of my very close friends, we are both big Star Wars nerds, and we have a, like a recurring Christmas conversation where we kind of just like shoot the bullet about Star Wars stuff that happened that year. That so, should yeah, be a good Star Christmas Wars. conversation this year. Uh, it should be a very good Christmas conversation uh, this year. So, yeah, it's it's. Um, I know a lot about the Star Wars universe, and it was fun watching this movie, which I think, as I wrote, it was very much a remix on so many aspects of the Star Wars universe above and beyond the movies. Oh, yeah. I wanted to, I want you to specifically cite some of those later on. Um, and it's kind of interesting to me that the continuity wasn't completely wiped, apparently, even if it supposedly was going to be, and that Abrams did bring in some references and, and jokes from that world. But then I think I first should respond as, you know, the person that I was when I saw Star Wars and what I bring to my viewing of it. So I'm a bit older than you guys. I was alive <laughs> when the first when the first series came out and cognizant enough to go see the uh, the first movie, even though I was just the right age for it at the time, 11 years old. I was not that enamored of the Star Wars movie, and I'll I'll say this between you and me. This is speaking for my 11-year-old self and, and not me, because I don't want to get a thousand enraged emails from female Star Trek fans, but it seemed like boy stuff, you know, to me. I think it sort of seemed like cool movie, nice special effects, but it was boy stuff, and I was just never that interested. So it's not a franchise that feels dear to me, although by now it's so culturally penetrated that it is really a part of the mythos of the culture. And outside of my experience of the movie itself, I might still have a feeling of affection for Yoda and Han Solo and these iconic moments from the series. So I guess I went into it with way fewer expectations and was happy just to be entertained at all. Yeah, there is a very strong gender divide. Maybe the biggest Star Wars fan at Slate besides Jamel uh, is Laura Bradley, you know, who is a woman. But for the most part, when I was asking who uh, at Slate has not seen any Star Wars movies, it was pretty much all women. Right. I mean, there's going to be, you know, huge exceptions and more and more probably as the generations go on, yeah, especially right. given that the fact the that, one, as we'll yeah. get to, this this is probably the most feminist Star Wars movie yet. Um, but, yeah, I think certainly in 1977 when I was seeing it in my, you know, Texas multiplex venue, that gender divide would have prevailed. Yeah. So let's get into the specifics of this this new episode and talk about where we're at as it starts. Which one of you wants to take the uh, the opening salvo of plot summary of this quite dense and broad 
movie that's over two hours long. So Force Awakens begins about 30 years after uh, Return of the Jedi, the, the last of the original trilogy. Essentially, in, we'll talk about this a bunch, but there are lots of callbacks to the original trilogy. And so in this case, the, the first callback you see is just the opening, um, which almost beat for beat is what you saw in the original Star Wars movie. Um, a New Hope, Episode Four. You are taken to a desert planet um, that is unnamed, and you meet uh, Oscar Isaac's character uh, Poe Dameron as he is getting some sort of object from an old man, played by Max uh, von Sydow in a cameo. Which you know, that's great. You can have him as a cameo. He's sort of um, the Alec Guinness stand-in. I feel like he's got a little of that Alec Guinness gravitas right. about him. Yeah. Uh, though I wonder if he was as derisive about this movie as Alec Guinness was, who famously thought Star Wars was ridiculous. Oh, I love the letters. Uh, Have you read the letters that he yeah. read? He wrote from the set. Yeah, all listeners, all <laughs> listeners should seek out that letter. But in short order. After this uh, meeting, you have sort of your imperial analog in this future called the First Order um, arrive on this planet, uh, and you're introduced to two other characters very quickly, two other main characters. I think the first is a stormtrooper. Um, who You don't see him without the helmet on first, but it's very obvious a stormtrooper who's disoriented by this attack on this village where Dameron is, and you learn more about him very soon afterwards. And then uh, the chief antagonist of this movie uh, – played by Adam Driver or Kylo Ren. Who are we going to spoil his identity now, or do we wait? Or I, well, Let's just go um, spoil it. I mean, it's spoil called a spoiler away, special. Right. I'll, I'll throw it spoil out there away. for anyone who's never heard this podcast before, but as indicated in the title, we're no holds barred here. The review has been written with all the tiptoeing, so come here after you've seen Star Wars. So Kylo Ren is the son of Luke, uh, not Luke Skywalker, the son of Han Solo and Princess Leia, who turned to the dark side after Luke attempted to train him in the ways of the Force. So he is our antagonist, and he is here trying to capture this object from uh, Poe Dameron. And this object is a map showing the location of Luke Skywalker, who has basically disappeared after Kylo Ren's fall to the dark side. And so the precise reason that Luke Skywalker is so important at this moment and that this map must be requisitioned right now is because of looming confrontations in the galaxy? Or why, why the urgency? So Luke Skywalker at this point in the Star Wars universe is the last Jedi. So I don't know if we ever hear, and Jamel, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know if we ever hear any specific reason they need him, but he is the most powerful good person in the galaxy. He's like the sage on the mountain that they need to consult, basically. Right. I mean, there there is they, there is an oblique attempt to explain why Luke Skywalker is so important, and later in the film, the big bad of the whole series, presumably um, Supreme Leader Snoke, says that if Skywalker is found, they can reconstitute the Jedi Order. Um, so that is the threat. But it doesn't appear – I mean, and this is sort of one of my complaints with the movie is that there are these overarching sort of structural things we need to know about the universe we exist in in the film. And you don't have to spend a lot of time explaining them uh, whatsoever. But it's it, it would be good to know them. Um, those things were why is Luke Skywalker important other than the fact that we'd all really like to see Luke Skywalker. Like why does he need to be found? What is his uh, relationship to sort of the universe at large? Um, why is this so critical? Uh, the other thing is I have no idea why – so 
in the movie, there is the First Order, basically the imperial remnant, whatever was left of the empire, reconstituted in, in sort of a new force. You have the Republic, which presumably is the restored Republic of the prequels um, and the successor to the rebellion. And then you have the resistance, presumably to the First Order. But why is there a resistance to the First Order when there is a Republic that is allied <laughs> with the resistance? That is an excellent so is question. Like, I, I, I also like, don't understand the political, the kind of political cosmography of this, this galaxy far, far away that we're in in this movie. As I was saying to Forrest, I also just basically don't understand the division of powers in the First Order, where Domhnall Gleeson appears to be the kind of political and charismatic leader who leads the Nuremberg-style like rallies. the military Maybe leader. Maybe he's the military leader, but then who is Kylo than, Ren? Well, Who's he's Adam like, because he's a little bit more of a spiritual weirdo who, like, practices this cult religion of the Force that people aren't sure whether they trust or so not. So he's kind of a lone wolf. He's not commanding forces. I mean, we see him go around leading armies, but uh, it does, and it seems like they're fighting for control. Uh, they are fighting for control a little bit of the First Order, who's going to be the right-hand man to Supreme Leader Snoke. But Donald Gleason's character comes off as more of like a straight military and uniform guy. I think one reason that it sort of immediately clicks for me, even though uh, the movie itself doesn't really explain it, is that if you... Uh, you know, remember the original movies, there's a kind of similar layout. And so you can just kind of map it all out. So in the original Star Wars, Darth Vader sometimes has to go up against military guys who are like, this force thing is bogus. And then Vader <laughs> has to like choke them to shut them up. So he's they like Rasputin or something. He's sort of like the, the right. spiritual advisor to the king who might go rogue at any time. I think that's right. I think it's it's very much a callback to the uh, Gleason is is our Grand Moff Tarkin, right? Um, the military leader who has direct command over sort of imperial forces, and Vader or Kylo Ren is our Vader, both figuratively in the sense that this is the character he is supposed to be. This is and quite literally, he is Darth Vader's grandson in the story of the film. And so is in this weird position of being with a military leader, with like authority, but not authority over his peers and the command structure. Just because he can force choke you doesn't mean you have to listen to him. Right. And he in turn, of course, has to answer to Snoke's yeah, yeah. Supreme Snoke. Commander Snoke, who is voiced by Andy Serkis and is a kind of motion capture animated figure who's very, very disturbing looking. He's a little bit sort of like a giant fetus he was with a- lots of sutures in his face and body who sits on a throne. That description is more creepy than I found him. I found him <laughs> just to look a little too much like Voldemort. Like mm-hmm. to me, he was just Voldemort with an extra scar on his forehead, which in itself <laughs> feels kind of Harry Potter. Um, but something about we'll his see. gnarled There's posture and the way him. he didn't move. He was always in that seat. There was something of the kind of, you know, formaldehyde specimen about him that was very skin crawling. And and jumping ahead a little bit I do think there's a moment at the end where he becomes slightly more interesting which is where this figure that I kind of thought was just Snoke in person. Am I the only one who thought this? You find out it's just a hologram. I thought it was was a very large man too. Right. Wait, wait, I think that's the illusion. So uh, I think for most of the movie you're supposed to think that Supreme Leader Snoke is actually there, a giant creature talking to, you know, Kylo Ren and Donald Gleeson's character. Oh, but he's actually but then just it a turns Wizard out of Oz he was projection? Exactly Wizard of Oz. Yeah, I, in fact, I, I think it would be kind of great if he turns out to be a, a tiny person. <laughs> I think that would probably be too big of a risk. Um, and if BB-8 so, is Toto, who pulls the curtain aside. Right. But wait, so, so when <laughs> do you see awesome. him as a, in a human incarnation? Well, you, do, you, you never see... This is why I, f- at the end, suddenly found him, for the first time, to be an intriguing character, is because we never see... We don't really know what he looks like in the flesh. We just see that 
the image that we thought was him starts to flicker a little bit, and you're, oh, right. that's a hologram. And, and I'll say, just to, to make my expanded universe reference, um, you know, one thing interesting about this movie is the degree to which it takes so many elements from the expanded universe and kind of recasts them, but they're the same basic thing. And one thing we know from the EU is that the Empire was species. It did not, aliens were not welcome in the Empire and were not an imperial rank. So here we have Snoke, who appears to be an alien, who is leading the, like this remnant of the Empire, and that's very much, I think, a reference to a very famous storyline um, from uh, novelist Timothy Zahn called Heir to the Empire about an alien, Grand Admiral Thrawn, who uh, leads the Empire in the wake of the death of the emperor and the kind of rise of a new republic. Right. So some of the some of the political systems or tropes that we see in this may not come from any previous Star Wars movie, but they may still be part of the imaginary extension right. of that universe. Let's talk about the new characters who come in early on. We already mentioned the the stormtrooper who pulls off his mask early on. He's played by the English actor John Boyega, and he's he's a very striking presence in this movie and in Star Wars history, I think. I mean, the moment that he takes off that helmet, which already is it's been really beautifully telegraphed by that first battle scene, how morally scarred he is by the battle experience before he ever takes off the helmet because he's got this bloody handprint, right? So the stormtroopers who, who we've always seen as these clean, sterile, machine-like white things, suddenly we realize like there are bleeding people inside of them. And that's really telegraphed by this handprint of the person that he, he's killed or did he just see him killed? I don't think he ever fires his weapon, but there's somebody that his squad has slaughtered that puts a handprint um, right. on his mask. Right. And so, yeah. Yeah, he becomes traumatized, and that's when he leaves the stormtroopers. And I agree. I mean, he's one, he's easily one of the best things about this movie, I think. I thought John Boyega was great and very funny and gave a kind of more broad performance, especially in relation to the other main young new character who is Rey, played by Daisy Ridley. And she's kind of the Luke Skywalker of this movie, if we're drawing a... Um, parallel with the original Star Wars and that she dwells on the sandy planet. She thinks everything's kind of boring. Um, she's just trying to salvage as much as she can out of the kind of junk around the planet. But then we soon discover that she has force powers of her own. We never quite figure out her parentage. Can we just basically assume that she is Kylo Ren's twin sister? I, I've seen some people say it's a mystery. It seems like not that big of a mystery to me. Why? Did What's pointing sister... in that direction? I don't. I mean, they just seem to have an intimate relationship, and aren't we able to see that they can sense each other, which is something that we've often seen in family lines, in the Star Wars movies. Maybe that's just because they both have the Force. I mean, I guess you know that maybe like Luke had a relationship with somebody or or something, and then she's related to more directly to Luke. Maybe she's Luke's daughter. Love child. Right. I, I think. I mean. I think. So this 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 is where the EU knowledge becomes very useful because in the EU there is a very famous another very famous uh, arc involving the children of uh, Han and Leia, um, one of whom uh, Jason Solo becomes a Sith Lord and the other of whom Jaina Solo becomes a Jedi and they end up their conflict ends up being the driving conflict of this uh, storyline and I don't I don't think Abrams and company lifted that entirely but again they lifted elements of it and so Kylo Ren very much is a Jason analog I don't think. Ray is his sister. I think. I think she's his cousin. I think Luke in the EU. Luke has a kid. Actually, Luke huh. has a kid named Ben. Ben Skywalker and Kylo Ren's actual name is Ben Solo. So there's another sort of like reference there, named um, after Obi Wan, of course. Right. 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 And so I, I, my my hunch is that it's Luke had a daughter. Basically abandoned her <laughs> on some desert, some desert planet. Which again, it makes sense. It would be a desert planet if it's Luke's child. 
Right. And well, in that case, as long as we're spoiling, then that would make the last scene of this movie even more fraught with meaning than it already yeah. is. The moment when right. when Ray finds him and extends the lightsaber in his direction to invite him because, to fight. Because again, the lightsaber is calling specifically to her. Right. The, the lightsaber in that scene in the in the bar or whatnot yeah, on that yeah. planet, um, the lightsaber calls to her. She touches it. She sees a vision of Luke. Which is um, a throwback to something that happened to Luke in one of the earlier movies, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Throwback Empire to Strikes the caves Back. in yeah. Dagobah in Empire Strikes Back. Or actually Return of the Jedi. Wait, really? I'm pretty sure it's Empire yeah, Strikes Back. Yeah, because it's... Wait, is it... You guys, we have to get out of the weeds. We have to yeah, get back yeah. to this. No, movie. I know. We're like we're like thirty minutes into this, and we just introduced Ray. <laughs> you guys are still oh, yeah. comparing your your bubblegum Star yeah, Wars right. figures from nineteen seventy eight. So I so I also want to talk about. So we've talked a little bit about the, the the new characters that are introduced. Something that I would say about both John Boyega's character, who becomes named Finn at first, he just has the mm. name of a, a robot FN twenty one eighty seven. As you've pointed out for us, a significant number in George Lucas's career. That yeah, he references yeah. In every movie. George Lucas was really obsessed with this old kind of art film called 2187. He used to put references to it in all of his own movies. And I found it kind of sweet. That I, I imagine that J.J. Abrams, he doesn't seem like the type to be obsessed with Arthur Lipset and abstract non-narrative short films. But it's a nod to so the I master. Feel like, yeah. yeah, right. It seemed like him tipping his cap to a tradition. So that that was kind of sweet. But so anyway, that number is soon converted to Finn, which is Boyega's character and her character, Ray. I think that, as I say by review, I think these are very worthy archetypes. I don't feel like they feel like flimsy, you know, styrofoam newcomers who can't stand up next to Han, Luke, and Leia, who also all appear, played by their original actors in this movie. Would you guys agree with that? Or did you did you have some sense of synthetic inauthenticity to the new creations? Uh, no, I loved them. I thought the scene where they first meet each other was maybe the best scene in the movie, or almost certainly the best written scene in the movie, which is basically that you know, Finn keeps trying to act all macho. It's a little bit of a, a Han and Leia type dynamic, but he keeps trying to act like he's a resistance hotshot and keeps trying to take her hand and save her. And she keeps saying, why do you keep taking my hand? Like effectively applying that she doesn't need any saving. And that plays out a few times. And then she kind of just wordlessly takes his hand at the end after he almost gets blown away. And, uh, yeah, I mean, this movie is um, pretty feminist and has a good sense of humor about it. And it just seemed very successful in that uh, respect to me. Would you agree, Jamel? Do you like the two two newbies? I like them quite a bit. Um, I've been a John Boyega fan since Attack the Block, his first feature film, uh, here, which is a delightful little British sci-fi action comedy film. Yes, one of the um, most underrated movies of that year, I remember. Nobody was talking yeah. about Attack the Block. And I thought both as for the director and for the for the actor, it was a smashing debut. And I was pleasantly surprised by Daisy Ridley, who I think um, – I mean, it's it's interesting, right, how much these new characters are kind of versions of our original trio. So Daisy Ridley is very much like Leia in a lot of ways, but also is sort of like Luke as a, as a pilot, um, as a very skilled pilot and a skilled mechanic. I love the Finn scenes of her is, as a gearhead. That is a great yeah, aspect yeah, of those, her character. Those are among my among my favorite scenes. Uh, favorite smaller scenes are are her and Harrison Ford as Han Solo, kind of trying to solve problems with the Millennium Falcon, and her sort of just like knowing what to do, and him being kind of like, oh, okay. And it's funny in part because in the earlier movies, the Millennium Falcon is like it's a piece of junk, and so Han and Chewie are constantly just sort of like hitting things to get it to work. And that makes for one of the better jokes in this movie, too, right? When they're in some kind of big hangar and they're looking for a craft to steal and the one that they want blows up just as they're approaching it. And then she says, all right, we'll take that garbage scow over there. And the camera cuts to the Millennium Falcon. Yeah, almost every kind of beloved 
object from the Star Wars universe that returns to this movie gets almost the best possible introduction. Like, that seems to me like the best possible reintroduction for the Millennium Falcon. You know, something similar happens where we get C-3PO again for the first time, and it and it's just in the middle of the scene where the kind of love theme is swelling because Han and Leia have been re- reunited after this long time apart, and they're gazing deep into each other's eyes, and then C-3PO kind of just pops right yeah, in front of the camera. Yeah, he literally photobombs them. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's like in both cases, it's also just staged visually in exactly the right way. It's like a very well-directed movie, even if it's not trying to do a lot. What are some quibbles you guys have with it? I mean, when you think, for example, about what Ryan Johnson, the next director of the franchise, might do with it, where do you think he might take it that's more daring? I mean, I think we would all agree that this this was great fun to watch. But I think there's also a little bit of a sense of... um, I don't know. It, it it succeeds by checking off the boxes, not necessarily by breaking into some visionary new direction. Sure. I think my big complaint is really that there's just so little the, – the politics of the world are, are barely touched on. And so I, I was just a little confused as to why there is a resistance in the republic against the First Order. The significance of either of those three factions was lost on me. And there's a scene where Gleason, as the military political leader of the First Order, is riling up the the assembled army in anticipation of using their super weapon against the Republic. And he's going through this list of other Republic is awful. And I just I, – I don't understand what the conflict is. In the original Star Wars, it's very simple. There's an empire and there's a rebellion. You don't really have to explain anything. But as soon as you add this third arm to it, this resistance, then I, need, I do actually need to know why there is a resistance in a, in a Republic against the First Order. So that that kind of bothered me the whole time. And I just would have appreciated a line or something just to tell me what why these things exist. Yeah, Um, I mean, I agree that that's a a flaw in the movie, and it's something I was confused about as well. It also just kind of feels like a little bit of a discarding of everything that we saw at the end of Return of the Jedi. Like, in retrospect, it makes the victory at the end of Return of the Jedi seem kind of more meaningless because fast forward 30 years and everything's the same again. Um, So I didn't love that. On the other hand, I guess it didn't bother me as much overall because there's just such a tradition in Star Wars movies of just kind of saying to the viewer, don't worry too much because we're just going to fast forward to the next thing. And they these movies cut from one thing to the next faster than anything else that was out there. And they still have that spirit a little bit. And so kind of the, the logic of everything is not super important to me, though I was occasionally confused. But weren't the films also criticized, or is this only the three prequels, it, uh, for having long debate sessions in, in administrative prequels. bodies and kind of very Those long statesmanship series? Yeah, yeah Those that's are only very the much the prequels, and that's one significant reason the prequels got so much criticism is, is exactly what Jamel explained. Is like, you know, normally it's a Star Wars movie, you see Darth Vader, you just immediately know his evil, all, all of his buddies look like Nazis, and, and they do use that a little bit in this, like the Donald Gleason rally, if you hadn't figured out the First Order was evil yet, you know, it looks exactly like a Nuremberg rally or something, and then you then you get it. So they don't have to uh, get into why their military policy is right. not it's sound like or something. It's like Lord of the Rings in that sense. It's like, if you wonder if somebody's evil or not, just see if they have, you know, pus leaking out of their eyeball. Right, right. <laughs> So I feel like we're kind of pussyfooting around the uh, the the biggest spoiler in this movie, which doesn't actually have to do with the final shot or the final twist or the teaser for the next movie or anything like that, but is something that happens about, I don't know, three quarters of the way through or so. I don't know if I can bring myself to say it. It's so painful, Forrest. Will you speak it for me? Uh, yeah. I'm going to procrastinate a little bit by setting up a little bit how we get, get there, which is just that, I mean, essentially this movie ends with the same 
uh, climax that the first and third Star Wars movies ends with, which is that there's a new Death Star, except for it's even bigger. Uh, even bigger than it was than the second Death Star at the end of Return of the Jedi. Literalized in that boardroom scene with the two holographic projections. Right. Here was the old Death Star, and here's the new Death Star. It's much bigger. <laughs> yeah. Which, in a way, should make the vulnerability spot much bigger, so should be good, right? Right, yeah. I mean, the Empire clearly needs to stop planning single points of vulnerability. So they <laughs> the attack Achilles the single point problem. of vulnerability. But, it, but while all this is happening... Han Solo basically goes to try to retrieve his son, um, who a lot of people are convinced there's no uh, hope for him, but he is convinced that there's still some good in him, and Leia asks him to go and basically just, like, I don't know what, express his love and ask him to come home. And then Kylo Ren, the Adam Driver character, offers his lightsaber, and... I legitimately bought it for a second. Did you guys? I was still worried, but I was mostly starting to feel relieved when he handed out the lightsaber. Well, we should say that this is all happening on one of those classic sci-fi Star Wars bridges with no guardrails suspended over an abyss. (laughs) So not a good place to have a lightsaber fight in the first place. Oh, yeah. I mean, up until... One giant OSHA violation. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Yeah. I mean, until Kylo Ren started handing out the lightsaber, there's such a feeling of doom that the sun is starting to burn out and they're on that walkway and it looks just like the scene where Gandalf dies in Lord of the Rings and and all of this but then he seems to make a peace gesture but then he's he got like, tears in his eyes yeah right? he's looking and so at his he's father. legitimately very conflicted I think and you're supposed to wonder anyway it turns out he he makes a turn towards pure evil igniting the lightsaber stabbing Han Solo right down the middle and then Han Solo falls into a giant bottomless pit. To his death, as far as we know, unless he's pulling a major Jason Bourne down there somewhere. Jamel, Dana and I talked a little bit after the movie about whether there was any chance that Han Solo is still alive. Did you even think that was a question? No, I think he's he's dead and gone uh, for two reasons. The first, in real life, I think they had to, like, beg Harrison Ford to do this again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the condition, I would not I would not be shocked if the condition for Harrison Ford to do this again was, you have to kill me. I would and love to re- hear that re- phone conversation. Just Harrison Ford saying, <laughs> kill me, please kill me. <laughs> <laughs> and reportedly with Jedi, even, he wanted Han Solo to die. So this yeah. is like a long, long-standing request for, for Harrison Ford. That, that we should maybe that. say quickly, it, it, uh, sorry to interrupt, in the press tour for this movie, he was saying that for the first time he didn't want to be killed off, which in rest- retrospect maybe just seems like a bit of misdirection. Like, I don't know whether to believe that comment anymore. I think I think Harrison Ford was glad to see Han Solo fall off that bridge. Um, <laughs> it is quite beautifully staged, I think. You also get a very long shot, almost Vertigo style, right, of a little figure, a little man-shaped yeah. figure just falling, falling, falling into the void. And there's a real feeling of, no, Han, it can't be true. Famously in the in the expanded universe, uh, Chewbacca actually is the one who dies trying to uh, – on a planet that explodes. And so I think I, – I have a feeling that this is a bit of a, a reversal of that. For people like me who would recognize, oh, a planet's going to explode and Chewie's on it, then Chewie's a goner. Yeah, I think you're exactly switching right. Switching up and having I, Han, be the, Han be the goner there. Oh, I, but I, seeing I, Chewie's little moment of mourning was really, really hard to take. When we should mention Chewie played by the same actor as 38 years ago, Peter Mayhew, which is kind of amazing. Yeah, and yeah, and I think... was great in the movie, by the way. Oh, yeah, he gets some really good laughs out of his little whimpering dialogue. I think you're exactly right about that, Jamal. I have not even, I don't know the expanded universe much at all, and I still wrote in my notebook something like, oh, God, Chewie's going to die. 
So I did. I, I, whereas going into the movie, I was like, oh, it's going to be Han Solo. You have to kill off the father figure. They successfully misdirected enough that even if you didn't know the expanded universe, you might right. worry for Chewie. I mean, you, you, of course, you're right. It is completely a series about parasite, right? Serial parasite. So right. we should definitely have seen that coming. This is a little off topic, but I just I have to know, what did you guys think of Adam Driver, who is a rather curious person to cast for this evil intergalactic N- nouveau Darth Vader villain. I just, when he takes off his mask, I love Adam Driver. I think he's a really powerful, unusual performer who always just seems slightly off kilter with everyone else in any cast he's in, which is kind of what brings him his power as a performer. But still, a part of me just thinks there's Hannah's boyfriend wearing a Halloween Darth, Darth Vader suit. Yeah, I, uh, I'm curious what you thought, Jamel. I was totally unsure. I, I love Adam Driver as an actor. I, I think he's so good. And yet he acts in a very particular way where he has, for example, very un- unconventional speech rhythms where he does a little bit of the kind of Christopher Walken thing. Right. And he did that in this movie, too. And there were some giggles in our theater when he first took off his mask. And then at the end of the movie, when he turns into pure evil, when you're kind of not sure what to think of him the whole time, suddenly I really liked his performance because it was because I realized, oh, we we just weren't supposed to think. It wasn't that he was giving a bad performance. I think in retrospect, he was giving exactly the right performance to kind of keep us, you know, unsure. I guess because his part is relatively small, he doesn't we didn't don't get much background from him. He really only takes off the mask that one time, I believe. It still felt to me like a casting stunt. I mean, I love to see Adam Driver in anything, and it was it was a fun novelty to have him pull off that mask and be Adam Driver underneath. But I'm not sure that what I said about Boyega and Daisy Ridley, that they sort of rise to the level of Star Wars archetypes, happened for me with that character. I, I, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to see the movie again, so I'll have another opportunity to kind of ruminate on this. But I, I thought the Kylo Ren character, I mean, we're supposed to kind of get that he's a conflicted person. And, and the, this was remarked upon throughout the film that he – is struggling with the light side in him. Um, there are a couple scenes where something goes wrong and he basically has a temper tantrum where he destroys whatever's around him with his odd uh, hilted lightsaber. And so I thought Driver's acting style, his, his somewhat off-kilter line readings, when he takes off his helmet that first time for Daisy Ridley, it's this sort of suddenly quieter moment. Like she's being tortured, then he takes off his helmet and he's like, okay, here I am. I thought that worked for a character who is supposed to be kind of on the precipice of the dark side, but not completely. It added, I, I don't know, added something of a bit of a human touch to him that didn't exist for Darth Vader, who is fully evil, mm-hmm. right? And I, 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 to that point, I don't, you know, at the end of the film, he is basically you know, maimed in the lightsaber fight. Uh, and I think that that's part of his transformation towards something more, you know, more machine than man, to, to borrow a quote from the first film. Uh, I thought it worked, and I'd say if there's any if there if there's any actor I wish I would have could have seen more of in the film, it was Oscar Isaac, who really had very little to do as Poe Dameron. And I'm a big Oscar Isaac fan, so I would have loved just to see more of him. Yeah, in the opening crawl, they they just say something like "Hotshot pilot Poe Dameron, the best fighter pilot in the Resistance," and that's the only description he gets. And it, it's basically the only character trait he has. Yeah, in he's the used as a movie. pilot. I was thinking, essentially, his use in this movie is to drive people. You know, it's like I'll take you to the airport. He's like the guy who's there to take them to the place where they'll have they will have adventures. But he's not in on very many of the adventures. Yeah, he gets some like wisecracks. I enjoyed seeing him, but he's he's so underused. I mean, he's like one of the best actors of his generation and all he's doing is sitting in cockpits. How do you feel about BB-8, the new super cute iteration of the R2-D2 style beeping android? 
I mean, BB-8 gets tons of screen time in this movie. BB-8 is kind of constantly mugging for the camera. It seems like if any angry fans are going to think that this movie has a Jar Jar Binks, it's BB-8. On the other hand, I just thought BB-8 was totally successful. Just like the way BB-8 moves is really novel and kind of interesting to wrap your mind around. And most of the BB-8 jokes are really good and get laughs. Yeah, I don't know. Were you guys ever annoyed by BB-8 or just no, no. totally I mean, swooning? He's clearly the child bait. He's the child yeah. bait in oh, the yeah. movie. But as child bait goes, he's not cloying. He's not racist. He's not grating or offensive. He's sort of, in a, in a comparison that you cut out of my review, <laughs> I hope just for space, he's yeah. kind of like the mechanical equivalent of a, of a Bichon Frise puppy. You know, he's just like this adorable teddy bear creature made of metal. And I got nothing against that. Toto. He's Toto, kind of. Can I just say on that point how... So much of what's refreshing about this movie is how it really does avoid all of the most egregious mistakes of the prequels. Like there were actual sets and there's great character design and there's there's no egregious racism. Like it's it's um it's and I watched those prequels again recently and they are ra- they are racist. Yep. So just if nothing else, I hope uh, people enjoyed this Star Wars movie that didn't make you feel gross afterwards and also was competently made. Right. Well, I mean, the the, the non racism of this film is double in that it, it features the most important black character to have appeared so far in a Star Wars movie, the John Boyega character, and that it finds other ways to have villains besides having them be some sort of degraded version of a racial stereotype projected into an alien body. Right, which is essentially how the prequels all solved the villain problem. Right, and I mean, I'll say even with the the, the prequel problem with aliens and racism extended beyond villains. I mean, even characters. There's in, in, in Attack of the Clones. There's a scene where uh, Obi Wan Kenobi goes into a diner for some god awful reason and talks to an <laughs> alien line cook who has a mustache and is like Greek, and it's like, uh, give me a fucking break, seriously. <laughs> There's a reason I think I only sat through one and a half or so of those prequels. It was just, it was just, it was not like seeing a movie. It was like seeing a, a terrible, terrible vision of a, a mind shut down. It's like the Peter Jackson, the late Peter Jackson movies, but we won't go down that road. Yeah, I think we could talk about uh, the prequels kind of, kind of forever. I, I'll say that um, just to bring this to the very end of the movie, we kind of referred to the last shot. Probably my only significant quibble with the movie, besides what you said about the kind of blind spots and world building, Jamel, is that the last five minutes of this movie were the only part of this movie that did not feel like Star Wars to me, in the sense that like the original three Star Wars movies and most Star Wars movies in general all end with all of the characters more or less united. Um, maybe there's one person missing, but they all kind of get back together. They stand in a line. You're right. There's a pageantry to the end of, of the first Oh, yeah. Star I mean, the Wars first movie. and third just end with big parties. And then the second one, because it's the kind of darkness before the dawn, it ends with them all standing in a line again, but they're looking sad this time and Han is missing. And this one has that moment... And you know where Daisy Ridley is going, so they should have just ended it there. But then they basically the last five minutes of this movie become a teaser for the next movie. And suddenly it felt like a Marvel movie. Like I I did not feel like I was watching The Force Awakens anymore. It it didn't really feel like the completion of the storyline. It felt like the beginning of the next one. And it was a good scene, I think. It has like a there's a nice rhyme between when Rey offers out her lightsaber to Luke somewhat tentatively and when Kylo Ren offers out uh, his lightsaber to Han you know a few minutes before and there's this tension of do they trust each other and so I think it's a good scene I just think it belonged in the next movie yeah it seemed like too blatant of a teaser for me but if the next movie had been starting right then I would have stayed through to watch it 
So before I say goodbye to you guys until the next spoiler special, I hope, I wanted to say something about this feature, this podcast, the spoiler special, which has been on hiatus for a while, essentially because of production problems and kind of not having a production team together to do it. But we are hoping to bring it back in the new year. We know that people are looking forward to spoiler specials, and we're excited to make more for you in 2016. All right, Forrest, thanks so much for coming in to talk Star Wars The Force Awakens. Thanks for having me. I want to do more of these again. And Jamel, same to you. Please come back and talk some nerdery soon. I'm happy to come back. Next year will be chock full of superhero movies. So just, you know, give me a ring. All right. I'll keep you on hotline. Our producer is Jason DeLeon. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. And the executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Forrest Wickman and Jamel Bowie, I'm Dana Stevens. Talk to you next time. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.